Welcome to the Critical Care Obstetrics Podcast. My name is Stephanie Martin, Medical Director at Clinical Concepts and Obstetrics. Today is part two of our podcast on iron deficiency anemia in pregnancy. Now you'll remember in the first podcast, we talked about what is iron deficiency anemia, how commonly it's missed, and how commonly it's inadequately treated. We also reviewed how to interpret iron studies and a complete blood count and talked about some of the issues with iron absorption. In part two of the podcast today, we're going to be talking about treatment of iron deficiency anemia and iron deficiency in pregnancy. I'll talk about the role of oral iron, IV iron. I'll, mo- I'll talk about how to monitor response and what follow-up is necessary. And then we'll conclude with the role of transfusion. I'm also going to be presenting a couple of cases that we'll finish up with at the end. So just to remind everybody the definition of anemia in pregnancy. In the first and third trimester, we want the hemoglobin to be above 11 or the hematocrit above 33%. And in the second trimester, we want the hemoglobin to be above 10.5 and the hematocrit above 32%. Mild anemia is defined as a hemoglobin between 10 and 11. Moderate anemia is a hemoglobin between 7 to 10, and if the hemoglobin gets below 7, then we're talking about severe anemia. Now, in treating iron deficiency anemia, of course, the first question is who needs to be treated? And I would say every patient who meets the definition of iron deficiency or iron deficiency anemia requires treatment. Iron deficiency needs to be treated too. You don't want to wait until they are anemic. If a pregnant woman is iron deficient, she will become anemic ultimately if you don't correct that deficiency while they're pregnant. Now let's start by um, introducing a couple of patients that I saw recently. The first patient was a twin who was 15 weeks gestation, um, and she had a long-standing history of ulcerative colitis. She told me that she had chronic bloody stools. She essentially never had normal stools. Her history was significant for multiple IV iron infusions in the past, and she'd even required a transfusion at one point. According to her, her hemoglobin is not unusual for it to get down to the 5 to 6 range. So, of course, I drew some labs, and her hemoglobin was 13, and her ferritin was 19. So that tells us she is not anemic because her hemoglobin is above 11, and her ferritin is is low, telling me that she has low amounts of stored iron. I would expect the ferritin to be above 30. Now, remember, she's a twin, and she's got ongoing blood loss, and she's going to have some absorption issues because of her ulcerative colitis. The second patient that I saw earlier was a 25-weeker with five prior cesarean births. And she is coming, uh, planning on, of course, her sixth cesarean delivery and has been taking oral iron pretty much the whole pregnancy. Now, her records showed me that her hemoglobin level three months prior to her visit with me was 11.3. So that was kind of borderline. It was above 11, but it was just, it was still kind of borderline at 11.3. And no iron studies of any kind were done and certainly no ferritin level. So now three months later, her hemoglobin is 10.6, which is low, and her ferritin is 15, which is also low. So we're now anemic and iron deficient. Now you could argue her hemoglobin level at 10.6 is not technically below 10.5, but it was close enough. I'm like, we're not going to ignore this. We need to do something about this because she's also iron deficient. The other point to make here is that this patient is 
going into cesarean delivery number six. So she is at significant risk of a bleeding event during her delivery. So we do not want her to be anemic going into her um, cesarean birth. And we have some time to try and address this. Now, before the podcast is over, I will tell you what I decided to do with these patients um, so that you'll have an idea of how I made those decisions. So if you've got a patient who's iron deficient and um, uh, anemic, you really have two treatment options. And some would argue three. One is to do nothing, which I don't think is an acceptable option at all. Um, but you've got oral iron and IV iron. Those are really your two options of how to treat this. Um, you know, yes, you might consider a transfusion, but I'm going to address the role of transfusion at the end because I think it's very, very limited in a, uh, an outpatient uh, with uh, even with severe iron deficiency anemia who is not having ongoing bleeding and symptoms. So oral iron for most patients is appropriate as first-line management for iron deficiency anemia, especially when they, we don't have any issues with uptake um, or absorption that's uncompromised and anemia is mild or, uh, or maybe in the upper moderate region. Some pros, I mean, it's readily available. It's very difficult or it's very easy to find oral iron. It's pretty inexpensive. It's convenient. And if used in appropriate patients, it can accomplish the goal for, for a certain percentage of patients. Um, so it, for a first line, for many, many patients, it's absolutely appropriate to try. What's the downside? Well, if you have ever tried to prescribe or recommend oral iron or tried to even take it yourself, especially during pregnancy, you know that side effects are very, very common, particularly gastrointestinal side effects like nausea, constipation. Those are probably the most common. And about 20 to 40% of patients are going to report adverse gastrointestinal side effects. And that can really limit the patient's compliance, their comfort with it, and, and also efficacy of the therapy. Now, gastrointestinal absorption is, is low. It's about 10% of the dose that you give, so it can take much longer to fix the problem. And that's why it's not appropriate for every patient as first-line therapy because um, we, in, a, in a pregnancy, you simply may not have enough time to try and allow the oral iron to fix the problem. And there are certain situations in patients uh, where absorption is going to be even more significantly impaired. Um, for example, maybe they have celiac disease or ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, or they've had um, a bariatric surgery that restricts uh, uh, absorption. So that there are situations where oral iron may or may not accomplish the goal. So let's talk a little bit about these over-the-counter preparations since we use them so much. I think what I find is that it surprises a lot of people when I tell them that if you look at the milligrams of iron on the label of the bottle, that's not really what the, the absorption is going to be. So the amount of iron that's listed on the label is not the amount of iron that's available to be absorbed. The amount of iron available to be absorbed we call elemental iron, and that's what is even possible to be absorbed in the body. And ferrous preparations um, are generally absorbed better than ferric preparations. And in the United States anyway, ferrous sulfate, a 325 milligram tablet, is a pretty common, widely used uh, oral over-the-counter iron replacement. But in that 325 milligram tablet, there's only about 65 milligrams of elemental iron that can even be absorbed. 
And if it's absorbed perfectly, it's going to be about 10% of that. So of that 65 milligrams, at best, you're going to get about six to seven milligrams of iron abs, ab, actually absorbed by the patient to be utilized to make red blood cells and do all the other you know, metabolic things that iron um, is, re- is required in order to accomplish. And if you'll remember, a pregnant patient requires in a singleton, normal, uncomplicated pregnancy, about a thousand milligrams of iron. So if you're perfectly absorbing about six milligrams of iron per day, it's going to take a long time to give the patient or accomplish a thousand milligram replacement. It's also challenging to actually take it because other things impact absorption. Um, we, you know, we often forget to tell patients that they need to time when they take it. We want to avoid anything that's going to reduce stomach acid close to dosing, such as milk, tea, coffee, or taking um, H2 receptor blockers or proton pump inhibitors, which patients are commonly taking for symptoms of acid reflux. Um, And some data suggests that adding ascorbic acid or vitamin C can help absorb some of the formulations of IV iron, although that may not be as effective as we like to think. So we need to be telling our patients to take it an hour before meals or two hours after, and sometimes giving themselves a brief holiday from the iron, like taking on every other day or every third day, can improve absorption and enhance their response. I think it's super important to recognize it is not enough to just give them oral iron pills and hope it works. And unfortunately, in my practice, this is what I've seen for years, that we just throw iron pills at the patient and hope that it solves the problem, either because we're afraid of IV iron or we don't know what to do if it doesn't do the job. And so we just just hope and pray. But you have to monitor the response closely. The reality is that within about two to four weeks, you should be seeing an increase in the hemoglobin with oral iron. So within about two to four weeks of starting therapy, you're going to repeat a complete blood count and a ferritin level, and you should be expecting to see in about two to three weeks, a hemoglobin increase of one gram. And if it's gone longer in about four to eight weeks, you can see a hemoglobin increase of about two grams. So depending on where your patient starts, You can see what you should expect and also, you know, whether they've responded appropriately. So if you've got a patient who has a hemoglobin of eight, if you give them about two months of oral iron, it might get up to 10, might, and you just may not have that kind of time. And so this is why we will often say, maybe you need to skip the oral iron and go straight to IV, or maybe it's sufficient for your patient, depending on where they are in the pregnancy. So it's also why it's better for mild anemia cases. Remember from part one, when we talked about that bucket where we're filling that bucket with iron and in pregnancy, the hole in the bottom of the bucket is big. They're going to be draining out and using lots of iron. So you've got to give them a lot of iron in a relatively short period of time. So who needs IV iron? The first group is the one kind of we've been talking about. They failed oral iron either because they can't tolerate it or the response to the hemoglobin response is inadequate because we know what's coming up or they're just not rising or maybe even they're falling. Some scenarios, there are certainly some situations where IV iron is preferable as your initial therapy and you're just going to skip oral iron altogether. So the first scenario is when you really need to fix their iron deficit pretty promptly and correct their anemia. 
So for example, someone who's advanced in the pregnancy, perhaps she's severely anemic or um, approaching severe anemia, or she's planning, uh, maybe she's going to have a big surgery. So, you know, maybe we know that she's got um, placenta accreta spectrum disorder or cesarean section number five or six, and uh, we just don't have time to wait and see if she's going to be responding to oral iron. Another situation might be, a, uh, maybe we know that additional bleeding episodes are likely. Perhaps she's got placenta previa or she's, um, uh, we know, or she's got an abruption or we know she's going to cesarean birth, for example. Um, if you're anticipating bleeding, then you're going to have an even bigger deficit that you're going to have to fill. And then maybe you've got absorption problems, uh, like the patient I described who has irritable bowel disorder with ulcerative colitis, or maybe a patient with gastric bypass surgery, where I know that that giving them oral iron is just not going to solve the problem the way it needs to be. Now remember, with oral iron, the very best you can expect is about a half a gram increase in hemoglobin per week. That's really the best you can hope for. So you take that into account when you're trying to make a decision of whether or not you have time to even see if you're going to get a response to oral iron or if you need to switch to IV iron. Now, what about IV iron? So this is not the old iron formulations, iron dextran from years ago that had pretty high rates of anaphylaxis, not just allergic reaction, but anaphylaxis. And nobody wants to be in a situation where they're dealing with an anaphylactic reaction in a pregnant patient. Modern IV iron formulations are safe, affected, and well-tolerated with very few side effects, especially when compared to the oral iron formulations. You know, I tell patients and referring docs that you can absolutely have a reaction to an IV iron formulation, but frankly, it's no more likely than giving the patient a new antibiotic for a bladder infection or for groupie strep prophylaxis or something along those lines. It's a very unusual occurrence, and it's, it's pretty safe. Compared to oral iron, the studies really show that IV iron results in higher hemoglobin at delivery, higher hemoglobin after four weeks uh, of treatment, that you're more likely to reach that target hemoglobin that you've been trying to hit, that they'll actually have a higher hemoglobin six weeks postpartum and you have less medication reactions. And this is probably because not only are we giving them enough iron to, uh, correct the problem, but we're also filling that bucket back up again when you give them a large dose of IV iron. So pros, uh, other than the compared to oral iron, there's you just don't have the same GI side effects that you do with IV, with oral. Absorption is not an issue. It's intravenous. So it's going to be absorbed and utilized, and it's not impacted by other factors like diet or um, uh, coexistent medical problems. It improves hemoglobin more effectively and replaces iron deficit more effectively than oral iron, especially over the same period of time. But it is more expensive than oral iron for sure. And it's less convenient. Your patient has to go into an infusion center, uh, have an IV, have it administered, and then uh, go out again. So um, to talk briefly about the IV iron formulations, they're essentially all equivalent. Uh, from my perspective, you just choose the one that's that's uh, going to be covered by insurance and that's available to you at your infusion centers. And, uh, you know, so some of them, like ferric carboxymaltose, ferromoxetol, and the ferric derizomaltose, 
have an additional advantage that you can give larger doses of iron in single infusions, so you don't have to give as many infusions. So for example, ferric carboxymaltose I use commonly because I can give a 750 milligram dose, then one week later give them a second 750 milligram dose. So they've gotten 1500 milligrams of iron repletion in total in two infusions. Alternatively, I use iron sucrose frequently because it's widely covered by insurance in the United States. Um, and I can give them 300 milligrams as frequently as every other day. So I'll give them anywhere from three to five doses. Um, you can give it as frequently as every third day, or I'll space it out to once a week, depending on how quickly the patient needs it um, and how quickly I need to see the effect. But you can quickly see that it's a lot more trips to the infusion center. Um, but really, you just choose which one you can get covered and that you can get the patient to, um, to get infused. Now remember, pregnancy requires about a gram of iron. So um, I will typically give up to 1,500 milligrams of iron because that will give them the need, it will fill the need of the pregnancy itself and replete the tank so that their ferritin levels will now be normal and they've got some iron stored. And patients commonly ask me, so if I get the IV iron, do I need to keep taking my iron pills? And the answer is no, you don't have to keep taking the iron pills because you are fixing the problem. So they don't need to continue with the, with the uh, replacement. A couple of notes about iron infusions. You don't need to do a test dose and you really don't need to do pre-medications except in rare situations. So for practical purposes, no test doses are needed and no pre-medications are needed. And you don't need to be monitoring the fetus during the infusion either. That's just, it's not really relevant. It's not an issue in that response. Now, just like with oral iron, you need to monitor the response to therapy. And you're going to repeat the CBC and ferritin in about two to four weeks. And you expect to see a hemoglobin increase of about a gram per week instead of half a gram per week. Now, depending on the dose you gave, in combination with the severity of the anemia, the severity of the iron deficit, as well as ongoing demand, you might need to give additional doses. So for example, a multiple gestation, that patient may need more than what you initially planned to give, especially if they have ongoing bleeding um, or they are going to have a big surgery ahead of them or something along those lines. So you monitor the response, see what happens, and then uh, go with it from there. You're not going to iron overload the patient if you're monitoring their ferritin levels. Now let's talk lastly, before I give you some follow-up on the patients, I just briefly want to address the role of transfusion. Transfusion really should rarely be necessary, especially in the outpatient setting in a patient who is um, not having active ongoing significant bleeding. Most iron deficiency anemia, the vast majority, can be managed with iron replacement and time. Transfusion is absolutely should be considered and is indicated if you've got ongoing severe bleeding. If you've got symptomatic severe anemia with hemoglobin of less than six, and what do I mean by symptoms? Well, chest pain and syncope, for example, or the rare patient who's allergic to iron. I mean, I don't see these very iron very often. I had one patient who was had an allergic reaction to an iron product and was therefore um, terrified of iron and and wouldn't even take iron pills, but that is incredibly unusual. So if you've got an allergy, then of course you're going to be considerate in that situation. But it's important to recognize that allergy to one IV iron product does not mean that she's allergic to others. They're not the same. 
So rarely are you going to need a transfusion. So before we finish, let me tell you about those two patients we talked about. The first patient, you'll recall, she was a 15-week gestation with a twin pregnancy and had ulcerative colitis with chronic bloody stools. She had had a transfusion in the past and multiple iron infusions. Her hemoglobin was 13 and a ferritin level was 35. So this is when I drew her labs. This is what we found. So I started her on oral iron with the plan to follow her CBC and her ferritin pretty closely at least every three to four weeks. But I counseled her that I fully expected her to require IV iron. Um, But at this point, she was not anemic and she was not iron deficient. So I did not give her an IV iron formulation yet, but I know that she's going to have trouble with with absorption. I know that she's going to have increased demand and I know that she's going to have ongoing blood losses. So I knew that she was going to require IV iron eventually. I just didn't know exactly when. I'm not going to wait on this patient until she becomes anemic. I will um, uh, demonstrate that she's not maintaining her hemoglobin and her ferritin is dropping and then we'll move forward with IV iron and I fully anticipate that those things will happen. The second patient you'll recall was 25 week gestation with a prior cesarean uh, birth times five and was looking at her sixth cesarean section. She'd been taking oral iron the whole pregnancy essentially and I had a hemoglobin from three months ago that showed uh, that she was borderline anemic with a, a hemoglobin of 11.3, but no ferritin level or other iron studies were done. So I drew her labs and now her hemoglobin is 10.6 and her ferritin is low at 15. So I arranged IV iron infusion for this patient with the plan to repeat her CBC and ferritin two to three weeks post completion so that I can document that she has normalized her hemoglobin and we've repleted her iron stores. This is a patient who's high risk for bleeding during her birth. And um, uh, I want to make sure that she has adequate iron stored so that she can um, correct her anemia now. And we minimize the likelihood of anemia developing postpartum as well. So take-home messages, iron deficiency anemia is common, and it's commonly ignored and undertreated. But the good news is it is completely manageable and correctable as long as we recognize that it's something to be managed. Don't be afraid of IV iron in the right patient. So thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. You can learn more about our company at www.clinicalconceptsinob.com. You can also follow us on our Facebook and LinkedIn pages, Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics, on X at OB Critical Care, and on Instagram at Critical Care OB. Email us or send us a direct message for suggestions on future podcasts. This podcast was produced by Austin Baird. Are you looking to create a podcast? Please email me at podcastnashville at gmail. That is podcastnashville at gmail.com.